Hey, what's up, guys? It's Rico here, CEO of SourceFind Asia, Costa Manchana Podcast. I'm the host of the SourceFind Asia YouTube channel, back with another podcast coming to you live from my makeshift podcast studio in my in my room, uh, my office slash uh, makeshift podcast studio. It's raining. I hope you I hope you can hear the background too much. So this episode is a little bit of a different one. I, I've said that a few times, but this is very different. So I got interviewed by this website called Market Watch. They deal with you know international business, financial reviews, uh, economics, and a little bit of entrepreneurship, of course, and then a little bit of politics. So they have this series called their Founder Spotlight, where they basically interview entrepreneurs in different industries, and you know they they ask a bunch of cool questions like. Knowing what you know now, what would you do differently? Who are three people that influence you throughout your life in entrepreneurship? What makes your company stand out from its competitors? Like, where do you see your industry going in the next five years? What led you to start your company? So, it's a second kind of article. We actually released the answer to one of the questions as a teaser in last week's episode. That was episode one sixty one. The question was, "What would I have told myself if I knew what I knew now?" about business and life. So if you listen to that episode last week, this is going to be the full version of that. So they sent it and, you know, the way it works is with these, and I'm noticing this a lot with the, I've been getting featured a lot more in articles and vlogs and shit like that. They send you like a list of questions and then you're supposed to type out your answers and then they have like a word count. Now, if you guys are wondering why we don't have a blog, it's because I hate fucking having to sit down and type out shit like this like i'm actually good at writing articles i'm good at writing essays and stuff i always have in school and i've always gotten like good grades and um my teachers would say that i'm a, a good writer but the thing is I'm a, I'm a perfectionist so when i sit down and i fucking write a blog i can't just fucking write 300 words or 500 words and just bang it out in an hour like michael michelini can I'll write it in one or two hours and then I'm going to spend 12 hours perfecting it. And it's just not really a sustainable way of, of creating content. So that's why I like the YouTube and stuff like that. But it's cool now because I have my team. So what I did was I basically recorded my answers in voice message form on WhatsApp and sent it to the team to be transcribed into the article. And then those are word count limits. So they obviously we had to cut down some of the some of the answers and stuff like that. Then as I was doing it, I was like, man, why don't we just download these audio files as MP3s and then uh, release it as a podcast? So the Market Watch article isn't out yet. We'll link it up in the show notes when it is. I'll definitely mention it in a future episode. But this is basically my answers to the article in full form, in full audio form that we splice together into a podcast. So without further ado, enjoy. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. Yeah, this is an interesting question because I actually asked the same question. I have like an article that I did where I asked a bunch of entrepreneurs about their perspective on business in China, what they would do if they were starting again, or what, they, what advice they would give themselves. So, I mean, there's two parts. I think there's the China business specific answer and then there's the general business answer. So I'll start with the China business specific answer. I think what I would tell myself 
I would say maybe spend a little bit more time building the relationships with your suppliers on a personal level. I mean, I spent a lot of times in factories. I think over the last five years, I've probably been to well over a hundred factories, and there were times where, you know, I I went on sourcing trips with clients, and or even just myself and my my staff, where it was two three days or even five days. I think the the most amount of time I spent in one factory, multiple factories, was a ten fourteen day trip in northern China, where it was just like most of the time in the same factory, but going to other factories as well. And you learn a lot from those. In fact, I have a video called Five Days in Antong where um, that was one of those sourcing trips. You learn a lot from spending that amount of time with the management staff and uh, the owners of the, of the business and things like that. So, I mean, the thing that changed is like the way business in China was done 15 plus years ago or 10 plus years ago is there was very much relationship based. It was more like, let's build our friendship first or let's get to know each other on a personal level first before we really dive deep into the business side of things. And if you did that, then, you know, that works in your favor. That's why a lot of stuff in China was handshake deals over drinks and things like that. Well, like my business partner, China Mike, I mean, he's talked about it before, like he would have business meetings where he's traveling from another city to the factory. They would talk about business for five to 20 minutes and then they'd end up you know, partying for for a day or two, two days. So that's kind of the way it was done before. When I came on, I took a little bit more of a restraint, like approach, I took a little bit more of a Western uh, business approach. It's like if I went for a business meeting with the factory, I would be there for most of the time. I would be there for like two hours, have the actual business meeting. And then when they would want to invite me to have lunch or dinner or whatever, I would excuse myself because I'd be like, look, I need to get back to the office you know we're paying our driver hourly i can't really have the driver stay too long like i would have some you know and then also had other meetings so i was very like strategic in the amount of time or yeah how i allocated my time towards those trips like i said i did spend a lot of time with factories and sometimes i would say yes to a lunch or yes to a dinner but i tried not to do that too often because a lot of times it's, it can feel like a waste of time, but I, again, just my perspective, one time when I spent 10 days in, in northern China and in, in Nantong and, and Suzhou and stuff, I learned from hanging out with the boss a little bit more of a... Pers- like what happens is the facade gets dropped. So the, you know, the, the, the first day that you're hanging out, you know, they're trying to put their best face forward and, you know, not to not be too emotional or anything like that. And then you end up like spending the entire day together, lunch, dinner and all that stuff. And then after dinner, you have drinks and maybe you go to like a KTV, which is uh, for, for Westerners, it's just like a karaoke bar, Baijiu and more drinks and you meet his friends and all that stuff. And then by the next day when you're having dinner again, all of a sudden, like the conversation would shift to, you know, hey, by the way, I've been thinking like, if your client could do this, this and that, it would be much better for us and our relationship on our communication or, or the management of, of, the, of the orders. So these would be, uh, you know, things that they would never really say to a client directly, unless they built this sort of trust or relationship with them. So 
I think there is a there's a benefit. That's what I would tell myself is just spend a little bit more time with these owners and 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 managers of the of the factories because it's going to give you more insight into how they think, how they view their business, and how you know the relationship between your client and the factory can grow or you know develop. Sometimes you learn that maybe the factory isn't the right factory for your client in terms of how they the the perspective they have on the business. I had another situation where. I was with a factory boss and over time we you know there were some issues I was brought onto the project to try to help fix those issues and in the course of spending days with him you know eventually I was I mean I was asking I was making suggestions on how to improve things in his factory how to systemize how to you know get better and then he eventually just told me he's like I honestly I'm happy with just keeping our business the way it is right now and and the size and and the way we operate like I don't want to get a bigger factory. I don't want to like you know spend so much time improving all this other stuff. The only reason is like if it was up to me, I would never do any of that stuff. I'm just only doing it for this particular client, which was a big red flag for me because that meant that the from the top of the business, meaning the owner and then the rest of the the business, nobody really wanted to implement any improvements and the client was trying to expand and 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 you know take their business to the next level but then your factory doesn't want to do that and if you're pumping you know 80% of your goods through that factory that's going to be a problem right there's going to be a stage where you know the, the the growth from the client doesn't match the growth of the factory and that causes a lot of problems so you know it's it's really important to spend that time with your partners in terms of just the general business what would I have told myself starting out as a consultant I think I would have just told myself to to respect my ability and time more like uh and what i mean by that is just basically like um when you're starting off even though my business partner had a lot of experience i was inexperienced so i felt sometimes a little bit uh guilty to ask for certain things from clients or i was undercharging for our services and then also what happens is you end up taking on certain projects with clients that you don't particularly work well with just because of the money and because and because like again it's uh you're not lacking a little bit of confidence in the value that you're giving whereas like now I know like we've rejected clients before multiple times and then we've actually even fired clients before where we worked with them and then you know basically after about a month or so we realized that the client like it was going to be so difficult to work with that it's not worth the money that they're paying us and then we would you know ask if we then terminate the the agreement and it's i can tell you 100% of the time the times when i didn't respect the value of what we're doing and it's been a long time since we had a situation like this has probably been like 4 years since we had a client like that but i can tell you every single time that's happened it didn't end well it ended with you know the the client being upset about something and or it ended up with us being upset about something it ended up with maybe some disaster with uh you know the the production time with the factory maybe like they brought us on and we already knew that this client wasn't giving us all the information so when we started working with the actual factory that they they'd sourced before us and then we start to see as we um sort of unweave <laughs> more information we start to learn all of the the mishaps that have happened between the factory and the client and the the client 
wants us to come in and sort of perform a miracle. So it's always important to like really respect the value that you're giving and turn that means that you will charge the right amount of money for either services. You'll pick better clients. You'll never pick a client just purely based off of money. It always just has to be whether the working relationship is going to be good or not. Well, I think what makes us stand out from our competitors on one level is apart from during COVID, I was still living in China for the past X amount of time, like X five years. Whereas a lot of my competitors don't live in China anymore or don't live in Asia. We're a young team, like the company is very young. So that's important because we impl- were very comfortable with implementing new systems and uh, being innovative when it comes to the services that we provide. Transparency is one of our core values in the business. And I think we were one of the first modern, I would say, if you're going to call us like a boutique sourcing company, we're one of the first ones to transition from like the pure trading model, which would be, you know, a client comes to us, they want to purchase, you know, LED candles. And then we go to the factory, we find out that one in the pre-unit cost of an LED candle is a dollar. And then we sell it to the client for a dollar twenty or a dollar twenty-five cents or something like that. We shifted from that, like from literally maybe my first few months on on, on working at the company, uh, when I first came on and and, and um, became Mike's business partner, we shifted from that sort of buying and selling model to, hey, you guys, full transparency. This is the actual cost of the product. You can choose to pay the factory yourselves or we can help you pay the factory but you're paying the base cost and then we're charging a separate fee and then of course because of you know the crowdfunding and amazon i think another aspect is we have tailored our services to fit multiple types of companies so you know we have for example sourcing reports this is a service that is applicable to you know a small to medium size or first-time entrepreneur it's also p- applicable to a very large company that's been you know sourcing goods for for years and stuff like that so we've basically been able to come up with services that are affordable for you know small businesses or larger businesses and then we're also accustomed to working with large companies and doing a lot of original design work so i think that's what makes us uh, innovative is like we chose the instead of niching down into a specific product we chose to niche down into a specific skill set and the skill set would be we are very very good at identifying good quality or high quality suppliers doesn't even matter what type of product it is we have a system that will help verify and and sort of suss out the you know the the, the best quality suppliers out of the trading companies or the the factories that are not suitable for their clients. We, like I said, instead of niching down into a genre, we niched down our skill set, which is like, like I said, the identification of high quality suppliers and then, um, you know, the managing of those relationships as a consultant, as a third party consultant. And we also tailor our approach depending on which client uh, we're working with and, and how that client's business is set up well technically i didn't start source in asia my business partner china mike michael shearhorn started it back in 2011 and then when i came on it was basically the company had shut down in 2014 and then 
he was still getting inquiries and there was a lot of interest even from his previous clients so the only reason why he checked on the company is that he was focused on um, his second business which is he's an agent for basketball players in china professional basketball players and semi-professional basketball players so he had shifted his focus to that but at the same time you know like i said he was still getting some interest from the sourcing side of things so that we connected through into china and basically restarted the company um and when i came on now uh what led mike to start the company i think it was just a natural need him living in china having moved to china when like in 2008 i think especially that period of time like in the early 2000s to uh yeah early to like i'd say 90s 2000s late 2000s most people didn't really know anybody that had lived in china or was living in china so there's always this aspect of like and then and then also the um, alibaba and all that stuff was was up and coming but it wasn't as popular as it is right now so the idea of you know the average person in europe or the states or australia or africa south america for them to just you know jump on google and google you know leather boot factories in china and start like making phone calls was absurd you know <laughs> it goes almost impossible for people to do it that time period by without physically going to china so you know naturally when when my when my business partner was here and he was in he was doing a, an exchange program he got interest from friends and family uh back in the states who would say hey can you source this product can you get this can you get that and i think one thing led to another and he ended up getting some very lucrative deals with Estee Lauder and a few other big companies in the, in the US where he was doing a lot of female accessories hair sourcing hair and and clothing and things like that so kind of fell into it and then from there you just he just built up the the interest in the business and kept going with it and you know the the rest is history as they say and then in terms of me the need is still there even especially right now with with the pandemic it's almost impossible for people to actually even go to china right now so there's always going to be that need for you know sourcing assistance in china and you're dealing with when he started it like barely anybody spoke english at the the factories like the factory staff again alibaba and, and you know 1688 and things like that weren't really easily accessible resources or not nearly as popular as they are now so that's pretty much what happens i think this is kind of a big one because from canada and i moved to china and i started a business in china and most of my staff are chinese and most of the companies is working with besides our clients uh clients are from all over the world but the factories we're working with were in china i had to i think the importance of systems and how that translates with cross cultural communication so you know first off with the systems aspect i think on an intellectual level i knew what the importance of systems were because of all the books that i read and that my influences like tim ferris and for a work week and stuff like that like that really ingrained in my mind the importance of a you know routine and and systems within a business but the practical aspect of this was like when i first got my first employees my first uh, interns really i remember the first standard operating procedure i had to put together was how to sort of research and communicate with factories in alibaba 
and them was because I brought my interns in and I needed them to help with researching factories for, you know, one of our early clients. And I found myself like, because I, I was coming at it from the Western mentality of like, oh, let's, you know, you just give them the requirements from the customer and then let them figure it out in terms of how to communicate with this, the, the factory and stuff like that. Like, here's a list of information that I need. Here's the product and go to Alibaba and get me, you know, 20 different factory options. That was like my, my approach. But what I found was, <laughs> what I found was then I ended up basically doing, it's like I was doing their job and my job at the same time because they were asking me questions while I was working on my stuff. They were asking me about how to communicate and research on Alibaba. So I'd constantly be answering these questions. And that happened, you know, uh, over the course of one or two days and I was starting to get frustrated. Then I realized that, hey, you know, working in Asia, working in China specifically is different from working in the West. That means that my approach has to be different in terms of how I deal with my staff. And I realized that I had to be more of a micromanager, even though I'm naturally a macro manager. So I decided, hey, why don't I just like sit down and write out how I would do this? I didn't even think of it as an SOP at the time. I was thinking about it more of as a, a template. But it really was an SOP, and, and I just wrote down how I would go to Alibaba step by step, what questions I would ask initially to the factory, and then how I would organize that information. And then I gave it to my interns at the time, and then, you know, they started to implement it, and, and I was like, oh, okay, I should try to do this with almost with other stuff that I do that is repetitive. And eventually through business books and stuff like that, I kind of just realized like, oh yeah, I need to create, as if I'm going to systemize this business as, as effectively as possible, I'm going to need to create standard operating procedures around everything that I do. And just knowing like it starts with one, like I started with that first one. And then I think about three, four months later, I started to just to allocate time every week to just write out one or two SOPs. And as the team grew, then it's interesting to see how the benefits of those SOPs happen because as you start to hire more employees and you fire and hire and you fire and hire, instead of having to train people, sit down with them for 20 hours a week and train them when you hire them, you're now passing on standard operating procedures that were created for previous staff and you've improved on and updated. And it just, it, the learning curve for the staff is, is significantly faster. But I also learned through this whole SOP situation that the cross-cultural communication aspect was is important as well to acknowledge. Um, me realizing that I would have to be more of a micromanager when I started to get foreign employees, which was probably about two years, three years into a business, when we had an Italian intern, marketing intern. I realized that I had to kind of pull back on the micromanaging aspect and that wouldn't be the best way to affect him. And I had to allow him to, to do what he does and give him, you know, the space and, and stuff like that, but put them in, put him in a sandbox and say, this, these are the, the boundaries, but within those boundaries, you can express yourself more fully. And now that we have staff from Europe and we have staff in the Philippines, we have staff in, in China, we had staff in the US, it's just a learning that I have to communicate differently with everybody and then uh, sort of just adapting those skills and cross-cultural communication and SOPs and things like that. And yeah, now we're at a stage where the staff in, in, in Europe and, and you know, staff in China and the staff in the Philippines 
create their own SOPs. So there's SOPs that I created that I passed down to, let's say, our first project manager, Imogen, who has now created her own SOPs or developed them further from what they were and has passed them down to other staff. And then, you know, most of my other senior, I would say management level employees, they create their own standard operating procedures, which I then review. And that's sort of how, you know, I've been able to, you know, expand it in that aspect, with, especially with the cross-cultural side of things is allowing them to take responsibility from that aspect as well. If this interview was pre-COVID-19, then this, the answer would have been easier. I think it's difficult because of COVID. I think COVID has changed a lot for a lot of different businesses. I think a lot of people and, and industries and stuff like that are going to need years before before things go back to some semblance of normalcy. And some industries will just never be the same. You know, so that's that's a difficult thing to say, like, where where do I see the company, you know, five years plus down the line? I have a general plan of where I want to go and where the business goes. But I never really tried to be too specific when it comes to saying five years down the line because you just never know. Like with a business like mine, especially with uh, international trade laws and, you know, wars going on between the U.S. and China. It's like stuff that I thought was going to happen three years ago happened in a year or stuff that I thought was going to happen way further down the line, you know, happened sooner. Like, so there's always major changes. I will say that I always that's part of the reason why i'm in the i i live in the philippines right now is i want to expand the business outside of china i want to source product from different countries like the philippines like vietnam like cambodia that was kind of my goal for this year actually was i was going to start to travel to i already went to indonesia this year and uh started to get some contacts there i'm in the philippines now starting to get factory contacts and, and product uh manufacturing contacts and I had planned to go to Vietnam and Cambodia. So that was sort of my, you know, next few years was expanding our factory base to outside of China. I think with the political situation on a global scale, the view of China's shifting further. So I think there's going to be more of a need to get a supplier base or network outside of China for certain products and for people that take a stronger political stance and don't want to source products from from China. With the business as a whole, I think what we want to do is we want to tighten up our services. We want to, some of the services that we have are like really valuable services, just people don't know that we have them. So a big part of that is the way our website has been structured. So currently we're in the process of redesigning our entire website, restructuring a lot of the services. The way we approach email marketing is also changing and just marketing in general. We wanted to, we started to get more into the paid advertising side of things. So there's that side of things is like tightening up our services and just making it more premium, which part of that has been empowering our senior project manager to basically run the operations um, and then she's on track to to be promoted which has then allowed me to focus on more of the high level stuff with with regards to marketing with regards to tightening up services with regards to the expansion that I, I just mentioned in terms of going to other countries and sourcing products from other countries creating and, and another big part of this is creating uh, strategic partnerships with other companies that are feeding 
clients to us and that were also obviously also um, feeding their services to our clients. So building that sort of ecosystem, for example, we deal with a lot of a lot of our clients in the original design space are crowdfunding people, and they've been a lot of times they're students from certain programs like the Enter China program. There's also a 90 day FBA with Riley Bennett and, and Lorenzo Payment. Those guys are, you know, in the F- Amazon FBA space. So they have students going through their situation, their program that is feeding into us. And then at the same time, obviously, when we have people that need rec- uh, assistance on crowdfunding or Amazon, which is often we also are, you know, using our leveraging our partnerships with those guys and helping our clients get those services. So. I think it's building more of that network. And then really, if you're talking about, you know, where I see the business, let's say three years from now, five years from now, we are starting to transition into more of an information-based. We want to have more information-based services. So whether it's courses or uh, certain services that are not really tied to physically being in China, but more in the teaching space, consulting calls, which I've done before in the past, but we want to create courses and, and video courses and, and, and master classes that would be evergreen and online and available for anybody who wants to maybe do it themselves or wants to just improve how they work with suppliers and, and things like that. So that's definitely the plan business-wise. On a personal level, I mean, I'm again, I'm in the Philippines. The, the plan has always been to spend less time physically in China. So my goal this year was to move to the Philippines and then sort of go back to China every quarter and be like three months off, like three months in the Philippines and then one month on in China. That's not really not really a realistic option right now. So we'll have to see what happens next year. But, you know, I'm, I'm very happy in the Philippines and I'm happy to be, you know, I chose the Philippines obviously from a business t- standpoint, but also just, for, but mainly for personal reasons, because I, I love it here, I love the weather. It's a more comfortable life. The cost of living is is lower. And for the stuff that I'm trying to transition into with the business in terms of strategic partnerships and content and creating evergreen content, having, you know, <laughs> fiber optic internet that's fast and, and open without any restrictions of uh, like with China, obviously we have the red firewall is is extremely important and extremely valuable for my work right now. So I'm actually more productive here than I am in China. And then on, on a personal level, there's other things that I have access to here that I didn't necessarily have access to in China, which would be like the men's sort of network, entrepreneur networks where, you know, there's places like the Refined, which is like a men's spa, but also a networking place and barbershop where you can go there and, and you can socialize. But at the same time, I've gotten customers from there getting, you know, affordable access to personal trainers, to uh, nutrition, healthy nutrition, things like that, things of that nature. It's just uh, that's sort of where I'm at, and I, I I don't have any plans of leaving the Philippines right now. So we'll see what changes in the next, you know, one to two, three years. But I see myself being here for a while, especially with the proximity to China. I'm a two-hour flight away from my office in Guangzhou, so that's that's extremely important. 
Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Main Cheddar Podcast. If you want to reach out to us, that's podcast at sourcefinasia.com. Yeah. If you want to check out the show notes from the episode that you just watched, that's sourcefinasia.com slash made in China. And be sure to also check out our YouTube channel, Source Asia. All one yeah. word. Cheers. Yeah.